Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business where your future is without boundaries and our approach is to. I am joined as always with my incredible co-host Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello Biagio! Ciao a tutti! Welcome, welcome to another great episode. For this episode, Growing Sustainability. We will get to the root of our agricultural infrastructure as a community, country, and world. To help fertilize our thinking, the Gateway is proud to welcome Chef Brian Flowers, Assistant Director of Food Systems Innovation at Northern Illinois University. Born in England and raised in South Africa, Chef Brian started working in the hospitality industry in the mid-90s. Over the past 30 years, his talents have taken him from South Africa to Europe, the Middle East, and finally to the United States. Chef Brian has worked at several renowned resorts, clubs, restaurants, and hotels before moving into education. Chef Brian loves to share his passion and knowledge of all things pertaining to the food service industry and has taught culinary and hospitality in higher education for over 17 years. Chef Brian's desire to work with quality ingredients has led him and his wife to buy the property now called the Red Home Farm, where they raise grass-fed beef, and operate a food trailer. Chef Brian, welcome to the Gateway. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Russ. Much appreciate. Uh, nice to see you, Biagio. Uh, much appreciate the invitation and welcome to everybody that's joined us. Much appreciate you coming out. Of course, of course. We are we are very grateful. And I, I want to start at the beginning like we always do. How did you get to where you are now from, from England to South Africa to sh chef to raising beef to all? How did you get here? <laughs> um, holy cow. I guess I could I could probably write a book on that story. I, you know, it's the same old, same old, right? Parents got divorced when I was uh, fairly young. Uh, my father couldn't stand my mother, so decided to move continents. It was the only way to get away. And uh, so we hopped on a plane, went to South Africa. He started working in the gold mines. Uh, and that's where I spent the, the majority of my younger years. I, I left there when I was 23, 24, uh, decided I wanted to travel a little bit. So um, my brother and I, one of my brothers, uh, he and I, we flew into England. Uh, then we boarded a flight to Miami. Uh, we had a three-month uh, visa, the, the normal three-month vacation visa. We landed in Miami, and we hitchhiked from Miami to Toronto and back in three months. Not something you could do now, but uh, it's, that's where my love for this country kind of started. Uh, we got to see many parts of the world that uh, you, know, you just don't normally see when you're traveling around in the United States, right? Um, I mean, I remember one of the one of the experiences that we had, we stayed in uh, Georgia in a youth hostel or in a, in a youth camp that was in a forest. And so all of the accommodations were tree houses. And uh, it's, it's a real pain in the butt when you're drunk, but I mean, it was just a great experience, right? So, um, you know, I traveled around, as you say, during that travel, uh, my brother, who is also a chef, um, he and I ended up stopping at a resort uh, in Indiana. 
And uh, so while we were there, we met the owner and uh, they were in the process of uh, retooling one of their restaurants into a bistro. Um, and so they, you know, they met us and they said, oh, you, you guys are chefs and you're from Europe. And oh, you know, how would you like to, to stay and, uh, you know, and help us out for a couple of days? And we said, ah, you know, we, we've got places to be people to see. They said, well, look, how about this for a deal? You don't have to pay for your accommodation or your food or your booze. And when they said you don't have to pay for the booze, I'm like, well, there you go. That's a winning winning case for us. So we stayed for six days and we helped them redevelop their menu. And, uh, and then we carried on going. And that was, that was my first interaction working uh, in the United States. Uh, and it was actually that company that then got a work visa for me to come back out uh, a year later. Wow. That's so I want I want to then go into more of uh I would say even your history within that. Where did you find your your passion for for food and and actually diving into that stuff? Well, that that came at a young age, right? Yeah. So, you know, if anybody's out there on in this audience that's uh, gone through uh, you know, parental divorce, you know, very often kids get kind of left in in the dark and said, you know, feed yourself, fend for yourself. And so you know, my first experience with cooking was when I was 10 years old, you know, it was, you know, nobody was there and it was, hey, I'll make scrambled eggs, I'll put two eggs in a pot, bash them up with a spoon and, uh, and turn the heat on and, you know, crunchy eggs is, is the way to go. So uh, I I, I want to get into the business and all of that stuff later on and all, but before we dive into some of the the serious stuff here, I always like to ask a chef like, what is? Do you have a favorite food? Do you have a favorite meal that like your go to or like your deathbed meal? I want to get that before we forget. <laughs> uh, uh, for me, my deathbed meal is one of two. It depends on who's cooking. Uh, <laughs> Fish and chips is one of my deathbed meals, without a doubt. It's got to have mushy peas and it's got to have curry sauce. And the second one is my grandmother, who is unfortunately dearly deceased. Uh, I need her to get resurrected so she can make me uh, bangers and mash, which is, you know, pork sausages, mashed potato, onion gravy and Yorkshire puddings. Now, either one of those two. And I'm a happy man. Nice, nice. Uh, your your English heritage is really coming through, so that, that, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, okay, so you you're here at NIU. You're doing innovation within in food and and hospitality and all of that stuff. Once fire was invented, what more has come from innovation with food? We figured out how to cook everything and there's nothing more. What what is innovation in food look like to you? What do you kind of focus in on and kind of spend your days doing? So if for us, it's food in terms of food innovation. It's more about the growing component of it. It's more about how to how to make it right, how to make it nutritious, how to make it affordable, how to make it accessible how to overcome the challenges that we face in our current food systems. Those are the things that we're working on. You know, when you look at the predominance of our challenges that we face in our current food system, food waste is one of the biggest ones. Uh, food security or food insecurity is, is another one. Sustainability of the food systems is, is a third. And then health and wellness, right? Nutrition. Those are some of the biggest challenges that we have so when I first took on this role uh, with NIU, you know, it was in the pandemic. So it was in August of 2020. Um, and so my first year and a half, it was spent, you know, kind of 
at home in the office, going down every rabbit hole there was, trying to figure out what is the food system? What are its challenges? What do we need to do to solve those challenges? How can NIU get involved with solving those challenges? And what programs do we need to build in order, because obviously we're not an ag school, mm-hmm. but everybody eats. So what systems and what, what programs can we put in place that creates a foundation for our researchers, faculty, staff, students, community members to get on board and drive the bus in the same direction so we're all working towards a common goal of those so solving those challenges. So I always find it interesting, specifically with chefs, um, you know, being a, a, a farmer, working in agriculture, raising uh, cattle, ra- you know, growing, all of that stuff is and has been a very large element of our economy, at least in America and, and really a, a lot of places around the world. That tends to be a whole career. And I'm seeing a lot of chefs having to dive more into that element, the agricultural, the raising of it, than just the cooking and all that stuff. Um, Is that a good thing? Or are we asking, are we potentially losing something from the the chef creativity because they're having to go and and learn these other things? Or do you think it can be mutually beneficial? Uh, I would say, Russ, to be honest, it's the opposite. The more Ah. connected you are to your food system, the direct connection to the growing, to the raising, the animal husbandry, right? The respect level that it takes to put that food in the refrigerator and on the table and on the fork. When you get down and dirty, and excuse my pun with the dirt aspect of it, <laughs> when directly involved with it, you can, as a chef, you can manipulate that system to be able to change flavor profiles grow food the way you want it to be grown, feed it what you want it to to eat in order to achieve the goal that you have for the end product for your consumer. So as chefs, what we've seen uh, over the past uh, 10, 20 years is more chefs are becoming more connected to the local farmers and the local growers for a number of reasons, right? There's a financial reason, there's an ethical reason, there's a sustainability reason, you know, but as a chef, if I'm if I own a restaurant, I want to know who it is that I'm that's growing my food. I want to be able to communi- communicate that to my consumer, because realistically, the consumers of today they want to know. Mm. Transparency in your food is very important to consumers. So being able to you know say, oh, it's um, Neiman Ranch is the person that I'm buying my pork from. Here are the standards that they use. Here's the methods that they they grow their hogs with. You know, I'm putting that on my menu. I'm putting that in a small marketing blurb. People are more apt to pay a little extra for that dish because of the connection. I remember, I I, I haven't watched all of them, but there was a Portlandia I saw where they were sitting in a restaurant and the waitress came over and she had the whole bio of the chicken that she was trying to sell to the consumer. <laughs> and I'm thinking that's, I mean, the name, a photograph, it's Tinder page. I mean, the whole lot, <laughs> it was crazy. So that's that's what it's about, right? That's why we need to get more involved with the food system. 
So, yeah, uh, yeah. go ahead, Biagio, please. I just want to jump in and, and again, thank you, Brian, a lot uh, uh, to be here. As you know, I'm from Italy and food is one of my passion and technology is one of my passion. So having you here talking about these topics, I think it's extremely important. I wanted to mention something like when I was growing up, I always hear that sentence like, uh, you are what you eat, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in a deeper level, having a connection with what food, what ingredients are in the, in the dishes that we consume is extremely important and people should be aware of that because in the end of the day, that's what constitutes the rest of our body on mm -hmm. a daily basis. So I, I encourage, like, as you said, people like you that they try to, to grow on their own food and, and know exactly what they put in on people's plates, just because you have a better knowledge of, you know, combination of tastes and also like uh, other, in, you know, ingredients that are needed to make the plate a little better. So I, from your perspective, um, in, in, in a society where we, we started to see people trending uh, with, uh, can I call it like junk food or fast food? Like how, is it this a paradox or is it like, I don't know, are we trying to do something that is um, counter the time of where we are right now as a society? Let's okay. So let's let's get let's go back to where the junk food, right? Where where that that terminology where it started, right? If you think about it, at the end of the Second World War, people were coming back. Uh, when you think about mechanized agriculture, you know that was around that time, the forties and the fifties, when that started. There was a huge excess of petroleum available, and they, they thought, well, what we're we going to do with this? Well, they figured out they could make, you know chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides, all from, from that, uh, that excess product, right? That's excess oil. And so, you know, you started to grow food on mass in quantity. <clears throat> when you reach the eighties and now you've got, you know, the baby boomers where dad's going out with a great job, mom wants to get into the workplace, you know, and then the kids are left to fend for themselves, right? It was all about convenience. That's when you started to see the invention of the TV dinners and the drive-throughs and the fast food restaurants and so on and so on and so on. So that, you know, mechanized agriculture, right? Modern agriculture has reached a point now where it is so effective, it is, it is highly efficient. And so it uses, it, you know, it, <laughs> It takes all of those ingredients and gives us the opportunity to make food that is so cheap, uh, but very unnutritious for us. So I remember as a kid growing up, my grandfather, when they came back from the war, they were allowed what was, what was called an allotment, a small piece of land that everybody got uh, provided to them by, by the, the local government. And, they could go and grow fruits and vegetables for their home on this provided piece of land, right? Uh, in America, during the Second World War, they created what they called victory plots, right? The food that was grown by farms was sent to the troops. And so, you know, consumers were encouraged to grow victory plot gardens. And so, you know, to answer your question, it, with regards to, to, to convenience foods and fast foods, this is just a product of a very efficient system and, and being able to make cheap and easily accessible food that is very convenient for people, right? 
And we need to, I mean, look at your, you know, your background, Biagio, from Italy. If you think about how you would eat, you know, lunch, it was a two-hour affair, right? It was, it was a, it was almost, you know, family time. How can I put it? It was very, it's very um uh I don't know what I'm looking for, but it's it's just a whole different way of life, right? We're all about go, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle cram it into your face, what I can do in 45 minutes, but not in Europe. Yeah. They understand that your body needs time to absorb these things, you know, eat a little bit later. This is why the Mediterranean diet is a successful diet. You know, when you go and you look, you don't see huge obesity issues in Europe, in Italy, for example, uh, in Spain as well. So it's it's just a different way of life, right? It's a different climate altogether. So and and I I mean I would imagine that you do get those kind of you know bad snacks and so forth in Italy, but um, not to the degree that you get here in the United States. With Brian, when we're talking about that, and, and I'm looking at that that quick food that that access that ease that was a an element of innovation within food and 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 it and it really took off. I mean, it's been such a large staple, at least in, in more of the Western countries in America throughout there. What do you see more as the, the next kind of wave of technology or innovation within food? Is it going to be more on the agricultural side of things, the growing, or do you think it's like, can we get innovative with the production side of it and how we process this stuff so we can get more yield. I, I'm very ignorant in this topic, but what do you see that that's something or some of those areas we could see some, some innovation in? Well, so it, it runs the gamut, Russ. It it oh, okay. Runs. So when you, when you think about it, for example, let's look at the agricultural side of things, right? Uh, you know, modern technologies are making precision farming much easier. Right. So if you I'll give you the perfect example. Uh, Netherlands, the Netherlands uh, are a country that you could fit into the state of Illinois three times. That's how big the Netherlands is. Right. They are the second largest exporter of food in the world behind the United States. A country that can fit in the state of Illinois three times produces not much less in terms of food than the United States. And how do they do it? It's by precision agriculture. It's by controlled environments, such as greenhouses, right? It's all about hydroponic. It's all about the technology that they use, the data that they, that they access. So those are the things that we, as a, as a nation, we have it, it's so spread out, I mean, think about this. Let's say you converted Northern Illinois into what the Netherlands does and fed Wisconsin, Iowa, Indiana, Kentucky. Imagine being able to do that. Yeah. You know, so that's that's one piece, right? Precision agriculture. I mean, I'll give you an example, right? They, they have uh, greenhouses that they have in, in the Netherlands. They have double glass... Uh, roofs to help conserve energy. And in that double glass, they use uh, diffusers. And so they pick out the light spectrums 
that are beneficial to the plants that they're growing. So that, you know, through as the sun comes through those diffusers, through that double pane glass, you get maximum production. It also enables them to get, you know, sunlight down to the lower parts of the plants, right? They do things like geothermal, right? They take geothermal wells and they pump heat into these greenhouses mm. through geothermal methods. They, they put these facilities in regions where they're, they're next to, um, you know, um, like a power plant. And oh. so any of the excess carbon that comes out of the power plant, the CO2, they then put that in to improve production levels because plants absorb CO2, right? They, they export oxygen, they, they absorb CO2. Um, and then they do things like they store rainwater, right? They harvest rainwater and they store it in underground uh, sand pits. That they that then the sand pits filter that water, you know, and then they can reutilize those those systems, right? I mean, even when it comes to you know the application of chemical pesticides, they don't use them. When they see that there's an infestation, they bring in these boxes of of beneficial insects that then attack the the pests. So they're very forward thinking in the methods that they utilize, right? So that's from an agricultural standpoint. You've got uh, drone technology to do pin, you know, to do analysis, data analysis, as well as uh, spot spraying to reduce, you know, fertilizers and, and, and pesticides and herbicides. So, you know, there's many pieces of the of the technology world that can be applied to. Uh, to agriculture. When you look at manufacturing, for manufacturing, it's about the safety protocols. It's about robotics. You know, can you bring robotics in to, uh, to improve the, the, the efficiency of the process? Um, and then, you know, if you think about that transparency piece, you know, the blockchain is, is a perfect example, right? When you get the blockchain involved in food, you know, then there's huge amounts of transparency, right? Because on the blockchain, the farmer can then put in what, you know, what chemicals were used, which pasture that animal was raised in, when it was born, what it was fed, right? And all down that supply chain, all of that information before it gets to, you know, the packaging piece can be on the blockchain. And imagine a QR code on the package of the product that you're purchasing, that as a consumer, you can just scan and then you can look at those reports and figure out exactly what it is. That's, that's transparency for you. And that's, you know, those are the kind of technologies that, that are going to happen, I think. Ross, if I can, if I can uh, follow up on this, is again, it's uh, interesting to talk about like agriculture and technology because like back in the days, there was no agriculture. We sometimes we still assume like there are horses and then they, they prepare the, the fields to grow things, uh, but uh, with, with the challenges that we are right now having in terms of like a lack of resources, water and climate change, all these challenges that we nowadays have, uh, one of the thoughts I have like back, I think a few years ago was like IoT and the impact of smart sensors they can have to benefit actually this area and uh, make, you know, smart growing of, of different, you know, plants and herbs and stuff like that but also in um in any area they can bring benefit because you can just identify areas that you know need more water or need less water mm -hmm. and 
you do not waste by you know irrigating the whole thing when you actually don't need that. Uh, have you seen like any application uh, of IoT uh, in the US that they can be like a good example that, that improve the sustainability of growing those those kind of uh, sensor technology? Yeah, sensor technology Biagio is huge, right? I mean, uh, what I've seen currently that they use sensor technology for is in uh, the, the carbon sequestration market, right? So understanding how much carbon is being absorbed into the ground from sensors in order to then give uh, credits to those farmers for carbon absorption into the ground that they're farming, right? Uh, and, you know, the, the carbon offset market is, I mean, it is like uh, the wild, wild west at the moment. There is very little oversight, very little regulation, um, you know, it, when I'll give you the perfect example, right? Think, think about this. Uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is one of the largest owners of farmland in the United States. And I didn't know if you know that, right? Um, Bill Gates now holds 242,000 acres of farmland. The largest owner of farmland in the United States. And you ask yourself, you know, why is he doing it? Right? And I, and I look at this from the standpoint of a couple of things, right? Because Bill Gates, is he, he also owns uh, a significant portion of Beyond Meats and Impossible Foods, right? So he's in the alternative meat realm. So why is he buying all of this land? You know, I think there's many ways to look at it, but I think it's mainly because of all of the companies that he owns that need to be able to reach those levels of uh, carbon offset by 2035, I think it is, or 2050, that the government is setting those regulations, right? And so he's buying up the land in order to be able to offset it himself. So sensor technology is, is critical for understanding that. Now, um, you know, when you look at the companies that are doing carbon offsets using those technologies, the problems that they face is that the sensor technologies uh, is fairly expensive at the moment. So, you know, it, to justify the usage of it, it has to be a farm that is of a certain acreage, right? So for me, who owns uh, 10 or 12 acres here and 24 acres down the road, I, my farms are not big enough. I can't use that technology because it doesn't make sense for them to deploy those, that technology, to deploy the people to go and uh, read that data, which is, which is a shame, right? Because when you look at the farms you know, 96% of farms that are owned by, by families, they're family owned farms, right? And the majority of them are no more than a hundred acres, mm -hmm. you know? So those farms that are a thousand acres, 2000 acres, those are companies that own those that have purchased all of the land, you know, uh, and, and just, so it's sensor technology, I think is gonna be a big piece of the puzzle for many different reasons, um, you know, especially if you look at the controlled environment ag, they use sensor technology all the time. I mean, we have a project on campus right now that we're working with a private public partnership. Um, and, it's, and it's to create uh, a more succinct aquaponic farm. So the growing of fish and plants simultaneously uh, where one feeds the other. Uh, and we have uh, a vast amount of sensors that we use to give us, uh, you know, water depth, 
Um, so, you know, there's many different uh, things that we look for in that. I can't I can't go too much because it hasn't been made public yet. But, you know, I, I agree. Sensors are going to be a big part of the future for many different reasons. And also on the like the shipping side of product, right? We are in a global world and being able to monitor like that the food was transported in a certain way so that it doesn't go like bad or wasted or it right. doesn't go to your restaurant to actually make you sick because that's right. <laughs> something that can happen as well. All right. Thank yeah, you. I mean that's a I mean that's perfect, right? Because if you think about it, you know, when you grow, let's say, you know, when you look at California, right? You know nearly two thirds of all our fresh fruits and vegetables come from California. So when that food gets put on a truck or on a train in a refrigerated car, you know, having that sensor technology to ensure that it has stayed at its optimal temperatures during that journey. Yeah. And if it didn't, you know, was it, I mean, I, I remember, I remember back in the day, uh, we used to have truck drivers that would bring, bring our food to the restaurants and they would shut the refrigeration units off because it saved them diesel. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I used to do is I used to go in there and I would, you know, check all of the temperatures and I would make sure that that truck is running. Well. <laughs> but, you know, if I'd had sensor technology, I'd know, did he turn it back on right before he got to me? You know, it would be very beneficial because that reduces the longevity of the life of that product. Right. And when you think about one of the challenges that I told you that we have food waste, that plays right into the food waste realm. If you think about food waste, right, in the world, anywhere between 33 and 50% of all of the food that is grown is never eaten. The value of that is over a trillion dollars, right? And, and when you think about- Brian, can I interrupt? Are, are you, when you say eaten, are you also including things like, like by like cattle, like consumed by anyone or just humans? Are you, no, does that it, make sense? It's not, yeah, it's just not consumed. It's just wasted. Put, okay. into a, it put into landfills or it's plowed back in, you know, to the farm fields. Got um, yeah. Wow. And, so when, and when you look at that, you know, when the food that, that is put into the landfills, what does it do in a landfill? Creates methane, right? And so that methane is one of the biggest producers of greenhouse gas emissions, right? That harms climate. That There's a big component of climate change. Uh, and so it's not just the food, right? I mean, think about, you know, when you look at how many people go hungry around the world, that food could feed those people. Not only that, think about all of the resources that we utilized to produce that food that are also just wasted. And we have a very finite amount of resources. Um, you know, it's, you know, we, when you think about it, right, uh, what do we got? Um, if we reduce food waste, uh, we could help close that gap, that gap, a 60% gap uh, between the food available uh, today and what is needed for 2050. And that's what everybody's shooting for, right, is how, how are we going to feed the 10 billion people on the planet by 2050? If we solve food waste, we wouldn't need to grow anymore we could still grow the same amount that we do. When, uh, for me, Brian, whenever I turn on the news or, and maybe it's just um, my natural deep, dark soul that I carry around every day, but um, I, I feel like it's really easy to get down on, ev on everything and, and really have a, a dystopian 
approach to the future. Uh, and I think some of it, it has to be a, a real understanding. We have very real issues that need to be addressed within this stuff. Um, if I live till, you know, 3000, will I be able to eat meat? Um, or is that just going to be completely gone? Like, are we are we at a point where there's going to be a a tipping point that now certain things in in our human uh, consumption is just not going to exist anymore? Because that might get me to change a lot of things very quickly. <laughs> I like my hamburgers. Okay. Here's what I'm going to say. And this and, and as somebody that grow, you know, raises my own beef, I think we need to eat less animal product. Okay. Um, I'm not saying that we cut it out because I think it plays a very big role. I think it will play a very big role in solving climate change. You know, when you look at regenerative farming practices, right, it's going to play a big role in because anyway, so I'll, I'll get to another piece in a minute. But what I will say, right is to answer your question, will you be able to eat what you want to eat now in, you know, in the year 3000? No, you're not going to be able to. You know, what we're going to have to learn is we're going to go back in time a little bit, right? Mm. We're going to have to go back to the, the way that we used to feed our communities and feed our regions. Uh, you know, regionalization of our food system is going to be critical, right? We're going to solve some of our food supply chain issues, we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by cutting out, you know, all of that transportation of food products around the world. Um, and we're going to be getting better, healthier food, right? Food that has more longevity, that we can utilize better. Uh, and, and, you know, when you, when you bring in the financial component to that, when you buy from your local farmer, you know, you're supporting your, your, your supporting your local community and that money's being used, what, three times, right? It's, it's threefold that it gets utilized in, in your own community. So this, this, uh, this desire that we have to have this unlimited choice, I think we need to start reevaluating that. Yeah. So, so here's, if, if we're saying we need to make some changes, but clearly at an individual level within this stuff and at a, at a macro level here, uh, what, what interests you in, in getting into raising cattle and raising beef within that stuff? Was it just from a academic pursuit to understand what that is and to, to provide a little bit of, or cause, and, and not to be rude, Brian, I don't think you're feeling like you're going to provide meat for the entire world with your farm and what you're doing. Right. So I'm very intrigued by that because that seems very interesting. And I think we all have a very unique understanding of what it is to raise cattle, but in reality, it's probably something very different. Yeah. It's, I got into it, right? So uh, I've never lived on a farm before uh, and I've never grown my own food before, but, you know, as working in Chicago and starting to see the trend towards you know, focusing on more local ingredients and visiting farmers uh, and, and understanding the, the, you know, the trials and tribulations that they go through to get the food on the table. I thought, you know, I really want to, I really want to learn this. I want to take part in this, right? Even if it's just for my own selfish, I want to feed my family the food that we raise, right? Uh, and it started out when we bought the farm, it started out with nothing more than, than two chickens. That's where it started. We got two egg layers. And, 
you know, next thing you know, I, I got a couple of goats. I thought, you know, goats are easy. I can get goat milk. I can make cheese out of the goat milk. I, make, I can make soap out of the goat milk. Uh, and when we breed them and we have goat babies, you know, goat's a great dish. I mean, goat is is a very prized meat in, in many uh, uh, cultures and, and it's very tasty. Um, so we started to raise a couple of goats, right? And then I thought, you know, I feel like I should raise a cow. I mean, it's I've got a farm, I got goats, I got chickens, I should raise a cow. So I bought a cow. Now the cows that we raise, they are not the types of cattle that you see traditionally today. The really big, you know, 1600, 1700 pound animals. The animals that we raise are the cattle that were around 60, 70, 80 years ago, and they're considered low lines. So they are the traditional size of cattle back in the day. So they average at around a thousand pounds, which is probably about you know uh, half of what the size of most you know cattle is today. Um, and so, you know, it's much easier to raise them. You know, it's uh, I I need less land to raise a couple of those. So we bought a cow, and uh, you know then I bought another cow because the first cow was kind of cute and I liked it, and so I thought, well that's. That looks good. I'll buy another one of those. And then uh, then we bought a bull. And I, you know, I don't know if your mom told you about the birds and the bees, Russ, but, you know, <laughs> when you bring a bull into the equation, there's usually babies to be had. Right. So then we started having, you know, having, you know, calves. And uh, next thing I know, we had 25 head of cattle on, on this little farm. And I thought, oh, boy, yes, we've got a problem here now. So my goal was, okay, let me sell them by, by, I could sell it as a live animal, right? I could sell cow-calf pairs, I could sell cows, I could sell heifers. Um, and then I started to think, well, why don't I sell them as a processed animal, right? I could sell a half of a beef or a quarter of a beef. What I started to realize is that most people don't have freezers that can accommodate a half of a beef or a quarter of a beef. And they, they're not, you know, they don't foresee you know, the, the need to go through that, you, they don't realize how much they go through, right? So then I thought, well, how am I going to get uh, through all of these cows? And I thought, well, I'm a chef. I bet you any money, I can make more money cooking those animals myself and selling them out of a food trailer. And so I built a food trailer. So I took, uh, a, there was a gentleman who was retiring, he was a carpenter, had a 14 foot uh, Wells Cargo trailer. I got that at a steal of a price. I put in a, a concession window. I kitted it out with equipment and I said, here you go. I've got a food trailer. Now I basically just need to back it up to the barn, walk the cows on, wipe their butts, and then sell them out of the door at $10 a pop on a burger bun. And, uh, and it worked like a charm. So here's where I, I have, as a, as myself, I, love love meat um to almost to a fault if you ask any doctors that i've seen um but i have a complete disconnect to my food system i i know that and some of that disconnect allows me to um utilize cognitive dissidence and understand that no nah, yeah it's a burger but it's not real animal because it's just a burger and i like that and i don't see the cute face because those damn cows are cute like they're like a lovely animal and i would have a emotional difficulty um being 
associated with the day-to-day raising of cattle and then having to um, take that next step and, and actually ending that life, which I get is, is a problem for me because like, right. I'm cool consuming it. I have absolutely no problem. But then when it's me doing it, I'm like, hold on, I got, I got an issue. Was that something that you had to confront and, and or was that easy to, what, what's that emotional process like, I guess, for you? Uh, now this or is, is there? I get asked a lot. Okay. And so uh, full disclosure on our farm, uh, when we raise meat birds, so poultry that is meant for meat, not for egg laying, mm-hmm. we process those on the farm ourselves, my wife and I. So on average, we raise between 50 and 75 meat chickens a year. Um, and that takes us probably two to three days to process those, uh, and get them into the freezer. Um, so, you know, for me, it was about learning the correct, um, you know, methods, uh, the correct husbandry methods in order to treat that animal with respect, make sure that I wasn't allowing that animal to suffer. Um, and once I had figured that out, I felt very comfortable with that process. Now, when it comes to the larger animals, so for example, uh, the hogs that we raise and the cattle that we raise, we take those to processing, custom processing facilities, right? Now, now and again, we've had, uh, I, we used to do before the pandemic, we used to do a, a pig roast every year in, in September, and we'd have, I don't know, 100, 150 people here, and we'd roast a hog and, um, and we'd have fun. And so, you know, when we do that, then usually I do that myself on the property. Um, But as a chef, when you're working with the meat product, when you're working with the, you know, those proteins on a daily basis, there isn't a lot of disconnect between, you know, butchering an animal and and then the initial stage of of slaughtering an animal. Um, Yes, it's, it's always difficult. It's never easy. But I know the type of life it's had. I know the life I've given it. It's it's had a good, you know, it's had a good run when it's here. And, you know, I don't feel bad about it. Yeah, that's, that's really, (laughs) and again, it's an, it's an opportunity for growth uh, for me because I, I, I do see that stuff and I, and I, don't have a problem. But when I hear people discuss, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to eat more plants and all that stuff because of the lives associated with it. I totally feel that. And then um, I don't always make those decisions to adjust that stuff. So it's, it's interesting kind of learning your perspective well, there. Go ahead. Your job on this is, is like, it's almost like saying that plants don't have a life as well. And that's, that's something I always like kind of challenge and not, not because I'm against, you know, vegetarian, vegan, whatever it is, but uh, it, you know, if, if you cut a plant, you're still giving, heart in the parent as well. Uh, so I always have that kind of like, okay, so you don't care about plants? Because I've seen people like just going around and cutting bushes, like, okay, let's have fun and do that. But uh, those are live as right. well. They are not rocks, right? Uh, some people say the plants aren't cute like cows are. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> Uh, uh, Brian, did you have any issues uh, or like challenges when you you switched to starting to like sell and and start that food truck and kind of from there like a per a business perspective side of things? No. So what what I did, um, 
when I started when I started trying to sell it to uh, direct to consumer the meat products, it was all about you know it's very easy to grow, it's very easy to grow all of this food right, but once you've grown it all, you know who's going to buy it? You know it's it's almost like you have to secure your market first before you begin the process of growing right. So a lot of you know from a from a farmer's perspective, there's there's a limited time on that product right. So when it's harvested you've got X amount of time to get that thing sold or it's wasted. So you'll see a lot of farmers do custom growing, right? Where they'll grow on, on order. So a restaurant will say, or an entity will say, I want, you know, I want 200 pounds of spinach, for example. Okay, I need half the money now, I'll grow it. And when I, when I deliver that, you pay me the other half, right? So, so there's that aspect to it. So developing the market was not easy. Um, but when I decided to transition to utilize a food trailer, then it was about creating, uh, opportunities, right? Where was I going to take that food trailer? You know, what, what events was I going to do? What, uh, you know, what permit fees did I have to pay? What, you know, what regulations did I have to follow? So what I did was <clears throat> I built a, a, a commercial kitchen on the farm. And so what I did, I went to the health department and I said, here's what I want to do. Tell me what I need. So they came down, they visited. I had, I had one, I had a building that uh, was concreted. It had a heated floor in it. It had walls in it. And I said, I want to convert this into a commercial kitchen. What do I need? They gave me a list. I fulfilled that list. They came back. They gave me the permit for it and said, this kitchen is good to go. And I said, well, so here's my other piece now. I want to do, I want to sell burgers and steak sandwiches out of this food trailer, what do I need? And they told me, and I said, okay, I'll do it. Now, what, what I said to them was, because I wanted to get into it at a low cost and be able to get out of it when I needed to, I did not want to put cooking equipment in the trailer because I didn't want to put a hood system and I didn't want to spend all of that money. So what I did was, I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to grill external to the trailer Right? So I'm going to have a big seven foot or an eight foot propane grill. And I'm going to grill all of my products on that. I don't need any hood or ventilation. I can put an AC in that trailer and make sure it stays nice and cool for my, for my workers. I put refrigeration in there. And then I just put two hot holes, which are like little chafing dishes that I could put the steaks in and the burgers in. And so when somebody comes up to the window and they order a sandwich, you know, I've got one person who is just there assembling putting it, I have one person who's taking the money and then I'm usually outside drinking beer and cooking to me. That's the way it goes. So, uh, so in terms of, you know, making that transition and figuring out where my, my, my biggest, uh, you know, financial gain was going to be made, it was definitely in the food trailer. Brian, I, I have a tough question for you now because, okay. um, I mean, I love technology. We talked about the potential impact of technology to make the world better. Uh, but I, I was growing up in the countryside. So I remember when I was younger, my happy time was going in the vannery with my, my grandfather or gathering uh, apples and from trees and stuff like that. That was my fun time. Uh, but then I'd see my brothers, 13 years old, younger than me, and he didn't have this, the same much you know, energy to just go out and enjoy the, you know, the countryside and that aspect of life because, because technology was there, like video games, TV, uh, iPhones and stuff like that. How can we make 
young people just enjoy those little things, like understand the value of just spend one day in the countryside and go gather some apples and whatever it is, but just, just appreciate the beauty of that, that moments. And so probably we value the food more, right? We don't waste the food just the day after because we don't want leftovers and stuff like that. I think if we gather and invest time in, in that process, we, we really get the value of those kind of stuff, right? How much effort there is into it that you don't want to waste, right? Right. I, you know, it, that's a very difficult question. You know, I mean, I grew up in an era where, you know, we were told, you know, go outside and play and don't come back until it's dark at night, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's not the case today, right? And technology is such a huge part of our life, right? So when you look at today's generation, you know, the phones are basically duct tape to their hands and God bless duct tape. I could use it for anything and everything. But it's not about removing technology from this. I think it's the collaboration between technology and, you know, being out in nature and being into in those environments, right? I mean, if I see somebody that's taking a selfie at my farm next to a cute cow, guess what? They're on the farm. Even though they've got a phone, they're on the farm. They're not sitting in, you know, a gaming chair in front of a computer, you know, playing Rocket League, you know, they're outside experiencing the food system. So I'm okay with it, uh, you know, when they're on the farm, because it's, you know, it, it, it builds stories, right? So then they go back, they, they build a story, whether it's via Instagram or, um, or whatever other, you know, social media platform they use. And they're sharing stories of, hey, guess what I saw today? I saw this cow that was giving birth to a calf. And this is where our food comes from. And holy cow, I don't want to be the farmer when he's got to shoot that cow because, you know, it was such a cute cow, right? Yes. So it's, it's, you know, I'm going to be honest. Everybody, you know, we're reaching the precipice where everybody's going to need to start to get involved in our food system. And nobody's more important than the generation of today, the kids that are in, you know, high school and college today, nobody's more important than that generation because they're the ones that are going to make the significant changes that are going to be needed to solve climate change and to solve food insecurity issues and food waste issues, right? They're the ones that are the most important. Yeah. So getting them on the farm, getting them exposed to it. Yeah, bring a phone, take a picture. I don't care. Brian, I, I know we're, we're getting close to, to time here, but I do want to cover um, two very quick topics and, and they can be yes or no. Um, when we're talking about food security and, and different innovative ways to go about that stuff, some of it is taking some non-traditional elements of protein and things like that and integrating it within it. And very quickly that comes to insects and things like that. As a chef, um, what is your opinion on it? Do you make a wonderful, uh, you know, cockroach dish or something like that, that I should try or, or yeah, are you I, kind I mean, of against that? South Africa. Yeah. Cockroach tacos were all the way. Yeah, <laughs> no, listen, I'm going to be honest to you. If you, when you look at um, the uh, other nations around the world that consume uh, insects and insect protein as part of their everyday diet, there's a lot of sustenance that's in there. Mm -hmm. um, now it's going to have to, I mean, we're going to have to use technology to put those in forms that, you know, uh, consumers that we're used to are going to be able to access that uh, or accept that. But when you look at, say, for example, crickets, right? 
they make um, cricket flour, right? And cricket flour is used in the production of cricket cookies and, and energy bars and so forth. And I'm going to be honest with you, you really can't tell. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's not so noticeable that you get that, you know, that dirty, you know, oh, this cricket just trampled through, you know, 60 acres of muddy land before it went into my cricket bar. They, they, it, you can't tell. And the protein source that it has, right, the beneficial uh, nutrients that it has for you, I definitely think there's going to be uh, a... a it's going to be like anything, right? It's going to be like uh, the old Cowboys. They've got six shots in that revolver. That's going to be one of the bullets. There's no one silver bullet that's going to solve all of these issues. So I'm, I'm for, you know, uh, insect protein. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not against that at all. Perfect. Good. I, I always like that one. This last one, fun one. Um, as someone who hails from the wonderful uh, area of England, United Kingdom, all of that stuff, do you have an opinion on Gordon Ramsay? I'm just, I'm just wondering. As I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to hop off now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That is all I needed. That is exactly what I wanted. Um, Brian, this was truly enjoyable. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, your wisdom, your knowledge. Uh, if nothing else, you have given us some food for thought, and I mean that in entirely for the pun um truly your 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 time was greatly appreciated so thank you so much for being here okay one last Ra one go brian is there a way like us or our student can get involved in what you're doing and make it things better like you know one oh yeah one end two ends whatever we can do to make things yes better. I, yeah so there's lots of ways that we can that, that we they can get involved right uh, we do similarly to this event here today, we do the innovation conversations that are part of the Office of Innovation. And that is an event where we bring uh, specialists from around the world to come and talk about food systems issues. Uh, and those events are done remote. They're also part of the passport program. We, we do give passport credit for students to come and uh, to see those. So if you go and look for innovation conversations on the NIU website, you'll find the ones that we have coming up. Uh, the other things that they can get involved in, we have a program that we're about to start next year. We managed to get some funding from uh, Senator Dick Durbin uh, to begin building an edible campus on NIU grounds. And so what that means is we're going to start churning all of those grassy areas and uh, the traditional, you know, uh, you know, perennial bush, you know, garden beds into food plots and food areas. And so we'd love to have students that are helping volunteer and, and participate in, in growing food for the community and for the campus, right? The idea is these edible, these edible gardens, students, when walking from class to class, if they see something that's ripe and ready to be picked and harvested, pick it, eat it, enjoy it, learn about it. And, uh, you know, so next year when this gets rolling, we'd love to have students get involved. And lastly, the other thing that we have going on is November the 5th and the 6th, we have our Food Systems Sustainability Challenge. Uh, it's labeled a hackathon, but it's more like an innovation-a-thon. It's a, a societal hack. Coding is not required. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, Biagio. No coding, right? I'm old. I barely know where to turn the computer button on, right? It's going to be cool again anyway. Yeah. So, don't so they can come and join that. It's free. It's a 24-hour event. Begins Saturday at, uh, at noon and Sunday at noon. Uh, join a team, uh, bring a team, and you can work on some of these challenges. Um, food waste is one, regionalized food systems is another, 
and lack of human diversity in agriculture, not enough people of color in ag, especially when it pertains to food deserts in the United States, right? Those are the three primary challenges. Uh, so those are the ways that the students can get involved. And if I can leave them with one thing, uh, well, not one thing, just a couple of notes, right? Um, make purposeful choices when you're buying food. Do your due diligence and make sure you know in regards to federal oversights on food production, what chemicals can organic farmers use? Where does your food come from? What does free range mean? Is it really free? Be careful of the companies that are out there greenwashing. Support your local farmers and work towards changing local ordinances to be able to do things like keeping backyard chickens, having bees available in the local area, right? You know, the purchasing power of the consumer is a very, very strong tool to have. Make those choices uh, count. Now that was a perfect way to end this episode. Thank you so much, Brian. Again, Biagio, thank you for asking that last question. That was a wonderful cross so that Brian could put it in the back of the net. I loved it. It was great. Uh, truly, everyone have a really good rest of your day. All right. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by NIU's College of Business. Please make sure to subscribe to The Gateway. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you are so inclined, please feel free to give us those five-star ratings, which help allow us to continue to bring wonderful guests to the gateway. Thank you all for listening. And remember to love always the promise of tomorrow today.